Good morning. It's good to see all of you. So at the age of 17, I had life all figured out. No, just wait. I was entering my freshman year of college at George Fox University, and I had one goal, graduate with an engineering degree that was going to make a lot of money so that I could give a lot of money to missions and so that I could be able to afford the six-plus children family that I was planning on having with the woman that I would also meet there. My own little Christian American dream, if you will. Well, it wasn't that long before that plan started falling apart. Um, I was getting okay grades in, you know, the homework and the um, projects that we were doing, but tests, I would absolutely bomb. I mean, C- minus was like, yes. Whew. Like, it was, it was bad. I would study myself into being a nervous wreck. I would stay up way too late. I would get physically ill to my stomach at the thought of the test that was going to determine whether or not my life was going to be a success. I got so worked up into him, so much was riding on these tests. I ended up flunking Calculus 2 my uh, spring semester, and I had to take it again at uh, Portland Community College in order to keep going in the program in my sophomore year. Fast forward to winter break of sophomore year, things had not gotten any better. My grades were at the point where we were realizing this might not be my calling. If I'm barely passing every class, you probably don't want me building a bridge. Just saying. <laughs> um, so I had a really hard, long conversation with my advisor, um, who was a wonderful, amazing man, very wise. And after that difficult conversation, we realized that probably isn't the direction that I needed to be taking my life. So I remember walking out of the engineering building. I was walking over to the admissions office to make a, a declaration of change of major. Um, and I walked down the steps of the engineering building out into the courtyard, and there's this beautiful winter day. I mean, just crisp blue sky, beautiful sunlight coming through the maple trees, absolutely glorious. At, and, but I was with tears in my eyes going, what am I going to do? I looked up to the sky. I remember saying, Lord, I'm sorry. I've failed you. I, I don't know what to do now. In that moment, my plans to honor God, my way, with the way that I wanted to do things were completely shattered. Even after that, for the next year and a half, two years, I still tried to scrounge up some sort of respectable career. I hopped majors five times. Um, grades kept sinking, kept sinking. Finally got a letter from the Dean of Admissions that I was gonna go on academic probation if I didn't get my 1.9 GPA up, which I was one AP class grade away from a four point in high school and I was both really proud and really mad about that. So imagine getting a letter saying, you're gonna get kicked out of school if you don't get your grades up. Everything I had was wrapped up in this. I finally switched to a biblical studies major, basically because it was the only degree that I could get that wouldn't require me to go two additional years. And at that point I thought, you know what? I'm just gonna get this degree. I'm gonna get out. I'm gonna stop accruing debt. I'm gonna go get some dead end meaningless job and work that the rest of my life and try to pay off my debt, I am now completely useless to the Lord because my plan, it isn't working. You see, I was believing this false perception that God and his relationship to me depended on my performance. I was believing that my value to him is conditional on 
my benefit to his kingdom? What can I offer you, Lord? See, I'm worth saving. That it was my job to iron out all the details of my life, the nitpicky, because he doesn't care about those things. He just cares about the end goal, right? And I put myself in a position of a success and excess, or at least I was trying to, so that I could persuade him to let me in. Sounds ridiculous coming from a guy who grew up in a Christian home, but there it is. I got so anxious about all these temporal things. How am I going to provide for my family? Um, How am I going to be a good steward of all these resources? How am I going to set myself up for success in God's kingdom so that God's kingdom can be advanced because apparently that relies on me? That's not the case, by the way. Spoiler alert. I got so worked up about it that I created this idol. It heaped anxiety upon me. I literally, most of my college career, I was sick to my stomach and... It was, it was bad. I had to go see doctors, and do I have an ulcer? Do I, have, I don't know. I had to go through different drugs and different things and could not find anything that worked. In fact, at one point, I was so distraught that I remember standing on the edge of a bridge, looking over and going, hmm, that's far enough down. I am, I am such a failure that maybe I should just take myself out of the equation. And that was when I was claiming faith in God, in the midst of it. I said with my mouth that I had faith in God, but my anxiety absolutely betrayed me. Faith and anxiety are completely incompatible. They are basically opposites. If you have faith, there's no need for anxiety because you put your trust in God. If you are full of anxiety, it reveals that you actually lack that faith that God is going to be who he says he is. And now I'm talking about anxiety that we all face. I know there's, there's medical anxiety and there's chemical imbalance-based anxiety and there's other things like that. There are very real issues that do need to be addressed. There are ways that can be helped. I'm talking about the anxiety that everybody faces. Every single one of you has had anxiety at some point. If you've ever raised a kid, if you've ever gone to school and not gotten a good grade on a test, if you've ever, like Greg likes to say, if you've been around five minutes, you've probably had the opportunity to be anxious. It's a continual struggle. We're going to get better at it. It's part of our sanctification process. But in this passage, Jesus says, don't be anxious. So how do we actually do that? How do we obey what the Lord is saying here? How do we tap into what Jesus is talking about? There is an actual way to not be anxious in this life. So we're going to dive in and see what the Word has to say. We'll start off in Matthew 6, verse 25. Therefore, hold on, only one word in. Therefore, this is referring to the rest of chapter 6, basically. If you guys were here the last few weeks, it was going over how we fast, how we pray, and how we give. And how um, that is an act of worship to God, how God sees in secret, and the reality of the intention behind why we're doing that. And specifically, laying up treasures in heaven. The reason you're doing these things is because your treasure is placed in heaven, like Greg was talking about last week. So this is saying, therefore, since you have made the right decision, since your treasure is in heaven, since you trust in God and you're not putting your trust in earthly things, do not be anxious about your life. He's saying there's no need. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. Now he gives two examples here. They neither sow nor reap 
nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And then skip to verse 28. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. I don't know if you noticed, it might be obvious, but birds don't have farms. They don't plant, they don't toil, they don't water and cultivate crops, they don't breed and raise livestock, they don't have complex international shipping systems to move these produces from one place to another, they don't have an economic system to purchase food, they are completely reliant on God's provision day by day by day, setting up the food chain as we have it, setting up the environment to produce food for them in enough quantities that they can survive. Every single day, they rely completely on the Lord. Every time you see a robin pull a worm out of your front yard, that is the Lord providing. That is the Lord's hand giving to that robin. And what are they worth in terms of value? What is a robin even worth? What is a bird even worth? If you turn a couple chapters over to Matthew 10, Jesus talks a little bit more about birds. <clears throat> Matthew 10, verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? So economically, these birds are basically worthless. Two birds sold for a penny. And yet, the Lord cares enough to know that bird's start date, that bird's end date, everything that bird is going to do, which is basically three things. And he pays attention to all of that. The first thing I want to talk about is that God cares about the small things. If we're going to not have anxiety about this life, we need to know the character of God. And one of the most amazing characteristics about God is that he cares about these minuscule things. If you go back to verse 28 of chapter 6, he talks about plants as well. It's, he's making the same point. He's just giving another example. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Plants and grass, they can't get up and walk around. They can't get the nutrients they need. They're completely reliant on the Lord to provide the sunlight, to provide the nutrients in the right amounts in the soil, to provide everything they need to be able to grow healthily. And for what? It could be trampled the next second. You're going to mow the lawn next week. They may burn up because half of Southern Oregon is on fire right now. And yet he cares. He's taken the time to extravagantly provide the very, very complex things necessary in nature for them to live and to thrive and to bloom and to blossom and for us to be able to see an example of the beauty of God. I had a really good comment that Greg shared with me about um, when our, the president of our CB Northwest um, affiliation said that grass has no reason to be anxious unless it's trying to be more than grass. The Lord has provided everything grass wants to, needs to be grass. If it wants to be a cow, well, it doesn't have what it needs to do that. The Lord has not provided that. So if you're anxious, it's possible you're trying to do something the Lord doesn't have for you. We're trying to be something the Lord doesn't have for you. That's what it was for me. When I was going to college, I wanted to be the engineer that made all the money. That's not what the Lord had for me. God cares about the small things. I didn't believe that for a long time. But it's so, so incredibly important. He cares about the littlest details in your life. And you 
are no small thing. You have so much value, so much more than sparrows. He knows you. He delights in you. You are no small thing. If you see at the end of both of these examples, the birds and uh, the grass, he says, are you not of more value than they? He says the same thing back in Matthew chapter 10 in a little bit clearer language. And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. The argument that he uses here multiple times is called an a fortiori. It's a Latin term. I don't expect you to remember that. It's okay. It's a Latin term that means the answer to this question, are you not more valuable they, is duh, immeasurably. You are so much more valuable, there isn't even a way to categorize it. It's a completely different level of value to the Lord. He even, in Jesus' referencing the birds and the grass, see what he says here at the end of verse 26, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. He doesn't say their heavenly Father. He's not talking about being the bird's father. He created them, yes, but we have a very special relationship of being able to be the children of God. He loves his creation. He loves everything he created, but there's something different about the way that he loves us, the way that he cares for us. And we see that from the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. This is one of the, probably one of the most important passages for a key theological and doctrinal topic um, that we talk about a lot, this Imago Dei. So verse 26 of chapter 1, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We were the last thing that he created. We are the pinnacle of creation. He had put all this effort into making the moon and the stars, water and land, separating everything apart, creating an atmosphere where life was possible. And the very last two things he created were man and woman. And if you read through the rest of the creation account, it says it was good, but he never says anything about the creation bearing his image. Now, it does reflect his beauty and his creativity, absolutely. We can learn things about God and about God's character by looking at nature, but there's something intrinsically different about being imago Dei, in the image of God. God is three person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that image that we get to share as human beings living in communion, living together as Christians, joining together in worship, is an example of how God exists in three persons at all times, each one relying on the other, each one being appreciative of the other. David tries to capture this in the Psalms, King David, uh, Psalm 139, one of my favorite psalms because it, he attempts to grasp probably the best that anyone could with human words what this actually means that the Lord knows you, the Lord loves you, the Lord has created you, and you bear his image. So we're going to read some verses in Psalm 139. We'll start in verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, 
Behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. We'll skip down to verse 13. For you know my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. You saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was not one of them. It's almost comical after reading that that anybody would be anxious about the Lord providing. God put that amount of care and effort into creating every single one of you. This isn't just one brush stroke, okay, I created humanity. This is very clearly he knitted every single one of you individually to be exactly who you are. Yes, we are broken because of the sin entering the world through Adam and death through sin, and we will die. We have hope in Christ, but we still have to face the brokenness of this world and the brokenness in ourselves. But God cares so much. He's, he knows more about you than you do or you ever will. He knows every single detail. He knows the number of cells in your body. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows the number of hairs that are no longer on your head. He knows. He knows it all. And yet, we still find ways to be anxious. If that doesn't hit at home for you, let's go back to Matthew chapter 6 where that theme continues. And really, it's in all of the Sermon on the Mount, this sense that the Lord knows the heart. We've been going through most of chapter 5 is, you've heard that it was said, but I tell you, you look upon a woman with lust in your heart and you have committed adultery. He knows what's in your heart. Uh, 6, verse 4, I'll start there. And I'm just going to read these off real quick, but you'll see a theme here. And the Father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 6. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 8. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Verse 18. And the Father who sees in secret will reward you. And we haven't gotten there yet, but verse 32. And your Heavenly Father knows that you need them all. He said it five times in this chapter alone, and it's the theme throughout much of the Sermon on the Mount. He knows you, he knows you, he knows you. He knows every need, every possible desire you could possibly have. He knows the needs you need 10 years before you even know you need them. He knows you. And he cares so much about you. We're going to get into a little bit about the gifts that he gives in a couple weeks, but I just could pass the opportunity to say that He loves you so much that he already gave the greatest gift that could possibly be given. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever... I can't remember the verse now because I'm on stage. You know it. (laughs) Should not perish but have everlasting life. The most difficult, costly gift he could possibly give... The gift that only he could pay for, that price nobody could have paid for but Creator God himself. He's already purchased it. He's already given it to you completely free. Every other need you could possibly have. 
every other thing that could produce anxiety within you cannot even compare to the anxiety that would be produced by knowing that you could be dead eternally. And it's already been given freely. My anxiety is starting to sound a little bit silly. But in the moment, we understand that there are very real needs. Now, this verse is saying, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will wear. And it's a bit of a metaphor. Us, mostly middle-class Americans, don't really wonder what we're going to wear or what we're going to eat. It's a matter of which of the 500 things we're going to wear or eat that particular day. But we do have very real needs. And those needs can easily become our primary focus. Our health and well-being, our retirement accounts and savings, the lives of our children and grandchildren. If the Lord cares so much about those minuscule things like the birds and the grass, how much more does he know and care about your very, very real needs? These two aspects about God, the fact that he cares about the small things and the fact that you are not a small thing, that he loves you and he knows you, they're so critical for us to understand because it reveals how we're able to interact with God and what grounds we have to come before him. What you believe about these two things will affect your ability to have faith in God. And that's the key to not being anxious. Like I said in the beginning, anxiety and faith, they contradict each other. If you have faith, there's no need for anxiety. If you're anxious, it's revealing a lack of faith in some aspect of your life. Now, if that isn't enough to convince you there's no need to be anxious, let's take a look at anxiety itself and see what it's actually capable of. Verse 27 here in Matthew 6, kind of in the middle of those two little examples of birds and grass, he throws this little sucker punch in there. I don't know what else to call it. He just, by the way, and which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? What does anxiety actually do? See, worrying creates this illusion that somehow you have control over what is actually impossible for you to control. It doesn't actually increase your ability to control anything. It's a waste of time, and in fact, it costs you. There was one author who wrote that anxiety has interest paid on a debt you may never owe. It's costing you something right now, your peace, your well-being, maybe your physical health, as was the, health, as was the case in my early college years. And for what? I couldn't control it anyway. There was nothing I could do about what the Lord was wanting to do in my life. The very meaning of anxiety itself is that we can't know the outcome and don't have control. How often do you waste your time going through every single possible scenario of something that's upcoming, a conversation you need to have, or um, event you're going to? Now, I'm the kind of guy that likes to prepare in advance way too much, overthinking scenarios. My wife is very sick of it already. She's very gracious. I prepare for the worst and I hope for the best. That sounds like sound, sound logic. You know, that's something I think a lot of responsible, good Christians do. We prepare for the worst, and we hope for the best. We have our ducks in a row. I'm not saying don't have a backup plan, but how often do we eliminate our need to trust in God in the name of stewardship? God, I trust you, but I've been really, really smart and wise with all of my finances and all of my resources, and everything is in line so that if you don't show up, I'm good. Everything is okay. It sounds ridiculous when I'm saying it, but I think we live that way. That was my plan. 
back in college, Lord, I'm going to set myself up so you don't have to do anything. You can just relax. I'm going to do the ministry for you. It's going to be amazing. Yeah. (laughs) What if being a person after God's own heart doesn't necessarily mean that you have all your ducks in a row? How many of you have stewarded God right out of the equation? I have, and I'm still tempted to. We have a child on the way. I'm super excited. We're going to be parents in January. I get to learn a whole new level of what it means to not have control. Thank you. (laughs) Megan works in labor and delivery, and she's worked in the OBGYN clinic for a few years before that. And I love what she says. If you don't learn that you don't have control through pregnancy and childbearing and raising children, if those two things don't teach you that you don't have control, nothing will. It's true, right? Those of you who have done it, I'm about to find that out. Whew. (laughs) We become hypocrites unknowingly. If we pray the Lord's Prayer, which was earlier in this chapter, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And then we spend all of our time on this earth making sure that God never needs to answer that prayer. We waste our time trying to take care of all those possible scenarios, make sure everything is lined out so that we don't need an act of God. Savings and retirement accounts are good things, absolutely. But if you trust in those, the second they disappear, and they will, guaranteed, anxiety will overtake you. But if your trust is in God, circumstances won't shake you. They may mess with your emotions. They may make you wonder. Fear is a very real thing, and it's very good. It reminds you of your need for God, your realization that you are not big enough to handle this on your own. But you won't be shaken because your faith, your trust is in the Lord, and He is steadfast. So anxiety doesn't accomplish anything. It has no power. By contrast, God can accomplish anything. I'm going to read a few verses to you that reveal this about his nature. Romans 8.31 What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What could we possibly face that God could not handle? And what could we possibly face that anxiety would add that God does not already provide? Jeremiah 32.27 This is the Lord talking to Jeremiah about what he's going to do in Israel. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Mark 10, 27. Jesus looked at them and said, With man is it impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. God can do anything. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need your anxiety. He doesn't need your plans. He cares about you. And he has amazing things for you to walk in. But being anxious and worrying about how that's going to come to fruition isn't going to do anything. In fact, it's going to hurt because it's going to pull you away from closeness with God. You're going to start to go, God, I don't, I don't know if you're enough. I kind of feel like I might feel a little better if I have a little bit of control. 
We start bargaining with God, don't we? Lord, how about I just, I'll choose my career and then you bless that. I'll choose the spouse I'm going to marry and then you bless that. Sometimes he does have us do that, absolutely. But are we doing it out of honoring him or out of some sort of grasping for control? Thinking that somehow we can help God. It's funny because my whole life I've been terrified of public speaking and I've been terrified of um, being, uh, even birthday parties. I, I didn't like my own birthday party because I didn't like being the center of attention. When they were singing the birthday song, I was like, oh, please, just get it over with. Like, I started singing along louder so that it didn't feel like it was directed at me. And I don't know. Just trying, <laughs> trying to find ways to combat that super shyness that I had. And yet, in what I thought was a lack of pride in myself, which I generally struggle with more than pride, somehow this little strand of an incredible amount of pride that I can do it better than God? Are you kidding me? Somehow, that strand was still in me, part of my brokenness. Lord, I've got a really good idea, and I think it's going to work, so can you just let me do it? I want you to remember today that God cares about the small things, the little insignificant details of your life. He knows. He knows how they're going to turn out. He cares how they turn out. Because you are no small thing, he loves you. He cares so much about you. He knows you better than you will ever know yourself. And God is able. God is powerful. He doesn't need anything else. You can't add anything to him. And that's supposed to bring you peace. It sounds like a little bit of a killjoy. I can't, I can't add anything he doesn't need you, but he wants you. He wants you so much to be in his kingdom, to be about his work. All of this truth about the character of God that we've looked at and the reality of the insignificance of anxiety is all culminated into this verse here, verse 32. For the Gentiles seek after all these things. They commit their lives to seeking after all of these temporal things that don't matter. But your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That's an amazing promise. What does it actually mean? What does it mean for us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? It means to be more concerned about spreading the gospel and the good news of Christ's death and resurrection than anything else. To care more about saving souls than saving your own skin. To be more concerned about the needs of your neighbors, the needs of your brothers and sisters, than your own. This isn't natural. I'm not telling you guys that you can just flip a switch and do it. We're self-centered by birth. How do we seek this realignment of priorities and values? I think the first step, and a really important one that we need to continue to remember, is to delight in Him. To set your gaze on His glory. Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of our heart. I think at some point, probably everybody had this verse highlighted. Amen! He's going to give me the desires of my heart if I read his word, if I delight myself in him. This doesn't mean that you're going to get the car you're eyeing, or that job you're hoping for, or that spouse you're gunning for, if you delight yourself in the Lord. If you look at the Greek, what it's actually saying is, As you delight yourself in the Lord, he will give you new desires. 
He will take out the desires for the temporal things and the things of the flesh, and he will put in desires for holiness, for righteousness, for the things of God. As you delight in the Lord, he will reach into your heart and turn your focus to him, the things that he longs for, to the saving of souls, seeing the kingdom advance and the darkness be pushed back. And he loves giving you these desires. This is probably one of his favorite things to do, is for you to delight in him and for him to bless you, for him to bestow his love on you, to change your desires, to get in and make you more like Christ. This is what sanctification is. We're all in this process. Luke 12, 32 says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He is chomping at the bit to give you everything that he has to offer. And we go, no, I really just, I kind of want this car, and I kind of want this house, and I want this pretty decent life, and this certain number of children. And he goes, who cares about that? I have the entire kingdom. I have the entire universe to give you. And you're concerning yourselves with these tiny things. Don't you know that I care for you? Don't you know that I know what's best for you? As you seek him, the things that you think you need will be shown for what they are. And the things that you actually need will become of no concern to you because of the faith that you have in God that he will provide. So how do we go about doing this? What are some practical things we can take home? Probably the best passage for this is Philippians 4. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 through 9. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any ex excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. One of the best ways we can do this, it's the simple one. It's the answer that we always get. Spend time in the Word. Spend time in prayer. Admit your need for Him. Lay your burdens down. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. He wants to hear. He already knows your requests, but He wants to hear because He wants to have a conversation with you. He wants to dialogue. He wants you to explore His heart and Him to be able to reveal Himself to you. All of the pain and the frustration and the years of stomach issues that I went through in my early college years would have been avoided if I actually knew the character of God, like I thought I did. If I actually knew that he cared about the small things, if I actually knew and believed in my heart that I wasn't a small thing, that I was significant to him because I was his creation and I was his child, I could have avoided a lot of doctor's visits a lot of omeprazole, a lot of frustration, a lot of sleepless nights. 
Another thing it says in here is to practice being thankful. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. You know how hard it is to be discontent when you're actively being thankful? Or to think about what you need when you're actively being thankful for what you have? And when you practice this thanksgiving, this verse promises that God will bring you peace. In verses 8 and 9, he talks about pondering all of these things, meditating on whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. These are all things that you can find all throughout Scripture. So any, any place in Scripture is a place that you can come to ponder, to learn about God, to seek His heart. It's not just the New Testament. It's not just the Psalms. Believe it or not, you can find God in Leviticus. He's all over. In fact, there's a few verses that I didn't end up quoting today that were from Leviticus that are amazing about the character of God. He is everywhere. This entire book is all about God, who he is, what he has done, what he is doing, and how much he wants us to be involved. And the second thing you can do is get to work. Ephesians 2.10, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he has prepared for us beforehand that we would walk in them. Hudson Taylor, very famous missionary, said God wor- God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supplies. I love that. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supplies. The things that he has called you to do, he will be faithful to provide. Everything that you need and probably far and above as any of you who've been walking with the Lord for very long can probably attest to. Through college and in the midst of all of my friends and everything that we were going through, trying to figure out what major we're going to have, where we're going to study, what we're going to do with the rest of our lives, um, it was kind of the first, I'm like on the very cusp of millennial, I'm not quite there, but I'm like one year away from millennial. And, you know, they, everything has to matter. Everything has to mean something. Like, their bowl of cereal has to mean something in the morning. You can't just eat a bowl of cereal because you're hungry. It has to fight some cancer. It has to be GMO organic and be helping some kids in Africa or something. And that's wonderful. But there's this, there's this search for significance in every single thing that you do. And that what that thing has to be is something lofty that affects hundreds and thousands of people and changes the entire world. Newsflash, most of you are not going to change the world on a large scale, you are going to change the world one person at a time as you encounter them, as you share the love of Christ with them. But most of us are not going to be Martin Luther's. And that's okay. (laughs) That's the way it's supposed to be. As we dive into what God has for us, it may look very mundane. It may be that nine-to-five job at that office that was a prison building, or at least you think it was. It may be scrubbing toilets. C.S. Lewis has this great little article called Drinking Orange Juice to the Glory of God. In all that you do, do it to the glory of God. Seek Him first. The thing that the Lord may have for you to do might be right in front of you. Don't discount that. You may be looking over the very real work that God has in your life, the way that you're going to be walking in his footsteps and honoring him. 
may be very mundane and right in front of you. They may be having a conversation with that neighbor who's a shut-in, who never comes out except to get their mail. It may be stopping and encouraging that person in the grocery line. And you don't know why, but I have this feeling that I want to tell you something. I think we can honor God most in those little, in those little moments. Those little things that are right in front of you. And if we're faithful in those little things, we don't have to be anxious about these grand plans. We don't have to be anxious about how are we going to affect the entire world. That's for the Lord to worry about. Now, Paul does talk about an anxiety within himself for the churches that they would thrive. And it's a little bit different meaning of the word. Because anxiety can mean something that's upon you that you don't know how to control it, and you're worried about its outcome. Anxiety can also be a little bit synonymous with zeal. You're so anxious for the church to succeed. You're so excited, and you know that there's opposition. And you hope and you pray that the Lord will come through. And then you trust that he will. At the very end, verse 34, he says, Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. We know from reading the word that the Lord is outside of time and space. He sees all that has been, he sees all that will be. And somehow we think it's helpful to worry about what we have no idea about. He already knows what's going to come tomorrow. Do not concern yourself with tomorrow. Trust what the Lord has for you today. Remember the things about his character that are true, that he cares about the small things, that he cares about you, that you are massive in his world. He loves you so much he sent his son to die for you, that you may live in eternity with him. If you're not assured of that today, I pray, I hope, I plead that you would become assured. This is the greatest promise. It's the answer to every question we have in life. It's Jesus. We always joke that that's the Bible school answer, how oh, Jesus, God, Bible. But legitimately, that's the answer. It is Jesus. Trust in him, and he will change your desires to line up with his, and you will walk in his steps. You'll become more like Christ as we go closer and closer and closer to that eternal glory that we get to look forward to when we are finally given new bodies. We get to live in the new heaven and the new earth. But we don't have to battle anxiety. We don't have to deal with sin. We don't have to deal with our brokenness because we've been made whole.